Good morning, church. So good to see everybody today. Wow, 90 years. That's pretty amazing. I think uh, I've been here for 22 of those 90 years in either youth ministry or as a pastor. You know, something I realized the other day that I uh, kind of had a little trouble with, I used to be referred to sometimes as that young pastor over there at ET. Realize I haven't heard that in a while, and <laughs> 11 years later, I think it may have something to do with the white beard. Um, if I was to shave that, maybe they, no, but I'm, I'm glad. You know, if we can hang on just 10 more years, we'll throw a big 100-year anniversary party. You know, that would be, that'd be pretty amazing. So if you have a Bible with you, grab it and turn to the first chapter of Mark. That's where we're going to be this morning. I love the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's got its uh, unique, unique things about it that kind of sets it apart from the other Gospels. I don't think I would necessarily say it's my favorite of the four Gospels. If I had to pick one, it would probably be the Gospel of John. But I would say that when it comes to the four Gospels, Mark is my favorite um, in how he begins his account of the life of Jesus. He starts in the first several verses of chapter 1 with Jesus being baptized by John and then going up immediately from there into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. We are going to begin our reading where he picks up right after that with verse 14. So I'm going to ask you to stand once more um, in honor of the reading of God's Word, Mark 1.14 says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Let's pray. God, I'm so grateful today to once again be with your people, Lord, getting into your word, and I pray that you would give us uh, just a supernatural understanding. Lord, I pray for clarity of truth, as uh, God, I present what I believe you have revealed to me in this, and Lord, that you would use it to transform us, to change us, uh, to God, to, to let us, to remind us of what this life you have called us to is really all about. 
And so, Lord, we just give you the glory for it and ask you to have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So according to Mark's account, when Jesus returns from the wilderness, from his face off with the devil there, he makes an announcement, he calls some men to follow him, and then he teaches in the synagogue where he casts out a demon. The way it's written there, in our minds, it sounds like these things just happen boom, 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 one right after the other, as if this could all have happened within the same day. But that's not really how these things went down in reality. There were several days in between some of those events and, and other events that happened as well that Mark doesn't record. But by him putting these particular events together the way he does, Mark is communicating something to us, the reader. And it all begins with an announcement. Verse 15 contains the very first words that Jesus spoke. Now, is that an accurate statement? Of course not. There were lots of other things that Jesus said in his life before he said this, but they were the first words that Mark records him saying. Mark is not trying to say that these are the first words that Jesus spoke, but he intentionally chooses these words to be the ones he begins his account with. In essence, Everything that Mark writes in the rest of his book from here on out is based on this announcement. And it's important to understand that Jesus was not teaching a lesson. He was not making an observation. He was not giving an opinion. He was making an incredibly important announcement. And it was the greatest announcement that had ever been made in human history. For Mark to choose this as the first words that, that Jesus speaks here means that this is something that we better not just gloss right over. We better pay attention to this because this, this means something. So let's look closer at it. All this week, I, Kent and I were at our annual theological roundtable that our Kerygma Network puts on. And so being away, I wasn't able to get anything in the bulletins for those of you who like to take notes. But uh, everything I would have put in there would be up on the screen. And so if you're a note taker, you can just follow along with that. So let's break this down. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, first we have to determine what time he's referring to. Is he talking about a certain season? Was it the time of the Roman occupation of Israel? Well, what he's talking about is the time of all history. And so we can say that it's the time that all creation had been in existence up to that point. The time that all of creation had been in existence up to that point. Biblically speaking, it was the time period between Genesis 1-1 and Matthew 1-18 when Jesus was born. So that's the time that he's talking about. The next two words is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, it essentially means that the purpose and reason for its existence has arrived. The purpose and reason for its existence has arrived. Jesus was saying here that he is the reason and the purpose of everything in history. He is what all of history had been moving toward. He is what all of history had been about. 
Jesus is not just the reason for the season. He's the reason for all of history. He's the reason for every season that has ever existed in the time of human history. The next phrase, the kingdom of God. What exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, a simple definition would be God's ways operating through God's people under God's rule. God's ways operating through God's people under God's rule. And then the next phrase is important, is at hand. That simply means it's right here, right now. It's not something in the future that we're looking forward to. It's not something that we have to die to become a part of. It's here and it's now. As I said, this was the greatest announcement that had ever been given. And it was an announcement that contained the actual power of God. Which means when Jesus said this, it had ramifications. And the ramifications of this one announcement are so great that we have still not yet fully discovered what all of them are. And it's going to take eternity for us to discover the ramifications of this one announcement. But here's one thing that it means in terms of biblical history. Next thing here is that the previous hope of Israel is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Biblically, in, in biblical history, the previous hope of all of Israel has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That means that everything that the prophets in the Old Testament said would come, has come. When they were prophesying about a restored nation, about a, a blessed and prosperous and liberated people, every one of those prophecies were fulfilled in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. You know, many people still don't fully understand that today. And when it comes to this, you essentially have three groups of people. One group is primarily Orthodox Jews. You could also include atheists in that as well. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah that the prophets were talking about. And they still don't believe any of the prophecies that, the, that they talked about in the Old Testament have been fulfilled. And so they're still waiting on all of these prophecies to be fulfilled. And the other group are those that believe Jesus is the Messiah... But only some of the prophecies concerning Israel have been fulfilled, and they're still expecting others to be. And the reason for that is because they interpret those prophecies as being about a physical land, a political nation, and the specific race of Jewish people. What they either don't understand or refuse to acknowledge is that the land, the nation, and the race that the prophet spoke of were shadows that were ultimately about a spiritual land, nation, and race that exists solely in Jesus. And then the third group, one that I'm a part of, is those who believe that everything that Israel had hoped for in the Old Testament has been completely and fully fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting on anything else but his return. 
where he brings to completion everything that was kicked into motion the moment that he stepped out of that grave. Namely, him making all things new and expanding his kingdom on earth. If you don't believe that, and you're still looking at all these prophecies to be fulfilled in literal ways, you're easily going to get sucked into being overwhelmed and distracted and stressed out by all this talk of blood moons, red heifers, and a third temple being built. I'll tell you right now, folks, the third temple has been built. It's us. We, the people of God, are the temple of God. The manifest presence of God is contained in us. It's not going to be in a building again. We are the third temple. Now, somebody's probably going to try to build a third temple because they're saying, I'm trying to fulfill these prophecies, but it's not going to be anything God's going to have anything to do with. It's already been done. Jesus has completely fulfilled it. And so don't get distracted by all that other stuff. Those that are still living in the shadows, refusing to see that the substance of those shadows is right there in front of them. And they get to now be a part of it. Okay, so everything in history, everything that history has been about has come and God's kingdom is here. That's the big announcement. Now the next part, how do we get to be a part of that? The last line, he says, repent and believe in the gospel. So let's define those. Repent. What does it actually mean to repent? I believe that it means to bring one's thoughts and actions into alignment with God's ways submitted to his rule. To bring our thoughts and actions into alignment with God's ways submitted to his rule. Repentance is required when what we say, think, and do does not line up with what God says, thinks, and does. And hear me, it's not just a change in behavior. Even more important, it's a change in our whole way of thinking. Because you can change your behavior, but if your thinking still is not lined up with his truth, about change behavior is not going to last very long at all, and you're just going to go right back to what you were doing before. And then the last part, believe in the gospel. The gospel, of course, means good news. So what's the good news we're supposed to believe in? The good news of the announcement that Jesus has just made, that he has fulfilled God's promises and established God's kingdom on earth. Now, at this particular time, the people still didn't fully understand what that meant. And what kept everyone from being the recipients of those promises and members of his kingdom was sin. But we now know that Jesus came to pay for that in our place. And so it's believing that God has acted independently of us to secure redemption for us. Believing that God has acted independently of us to secure redemption for us. Him acting independently of us means that we didn't do anything to cause him to do that. To cause him to... to to provide our redemption. We didn't do anything to earn it, to deserve it. What we deserved was to be completely wiped out and separated from him forever. But God acted according to his own mercy and grace by his own sovereign will, not ours. So that's what it means that he acted independently of us 
in order to redeem us. Believe here doesn't just mean be in like intellectual agreement with it. True belief is going to affect your actions. What does that mean? Well, right now as I look out at all of you, I can immediately tell that there is something that you believe. You don't even have to tell me. I just see it in your actions. Every one of you believe that that bench you're sitting on is going to support you and hold you up off the ground. If you didn't believe it, I promise you would not be sitting in it. And so that is your belief in action. You, you don't even have to tell me. I can see it by, by, by what you do. That there are many people who say they believe the gospel, but their actions say otherwise. It's not really belief unless it affects how you live. Okay, so the first part, Jesus says, is the announcement that something amazing has happened. The second part is how we become the recipients of those promises and members of his kingdom. There's just two requirements, repentance and belief. The tendency over the last hundred years or so of church history is for us to just, just rush to our part in the exchange. We have tended to put a whole lot more focus on the repent and believe then we do the first part. And when that happens, it inevitably leads to preaching and focus on nothing but propositions and principles and formulas without being defined and interpreted by the announcement itself. Propositions, principles, and formulas won't change anyone. It is the power of the announcement itself that causes transformation in people. The announcement then becomes a call, and the very nature of it demands a response. If the announcement, if that proclamation is true, action is going to result. And the action is going to be just one of two things. It's either going to be repentance and belief, or it's going to be to refuse to. There is no other option. Well, I'm just going to believe some of it. But then the, no, you either repent or believe or you reject it outright. There is no neutral ground. There is no apathy. There is going to be one of those two responses to the announcement. I believe Mark chose to write about the, those three events that followed to illustrate the impact of that one announcement. Because when he called the disciples, those four men there, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, what we see there is repentance and belief. They dropped what they were doing to follow Jesus. They were aligning their whole lives with him. How did they believe in what he said? Because you could see it. It, it was in, in their action. And then it says that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. In verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The scribes would go into a synagogue and take a text from the Old Testament and explain what they thought that text really meant. Jesus was not saying, this is what I think this means. He was saying, this is what this means. And I should know because... I wrote it. <laughs> and then the demon-possessed man comes up that Jesus casts out, which was a display 
of the kingdom of God being present, being at hand. Because when God's kingdom is present, it brings order to chaos, peace to turmoil, light to darkness. The rule and authority of Jesus supplants any and all authority that existed before. What Mark was communicating in the way that he begins his account there in chapter 1 is just the fact that Jesus coming to earth absolutely changed everything. The entire course of human history would never be the same. Good news is that you and I still get to be a part of this. All those who are in Christ, we represent the kingdom of God everywhere we go. I mean, this is not just something that existed in a historical account that we, that we read about and, and reminisce about. No, we get to participate in this even now still. Everywhere we go, we are to make that same announcement and display that the kingdom is here. And to be able to do that effectively, it requires those same two things on an ongoing basis, repentance and belief. It's not just a one-time thing. We do that in an ongoing way. Every day we have to intentionally align our thoughts with the truth of what God says. We've got to align what we do and how we think with God's economy. Every day we have to make sure that, that what we believe is based on the announcement and nothing more. Not just every day, but really every moment of every day. That's because we are constantly bombarded by messages of this world that go against that and want us to believe something else that is contrary to what God says, contrary to how His kingdom operates. And I'm going to kind of shift gears here because there is one message in particular that is coming from the culture of our world that seems to just be getting stronger and stronger, so strong that many who claim to be Christians, to be the people of God, are even buying into it. It's creeping itself even into the church, and it's a message that's called expressive individualism. A simple definition of it is this. Each person finds their meaning by giving expression to their own feelings and desires. Each person finds their true meaning by giving expression to whatever they feel, to whatever they desire. The message of the world says that to be an authentic individual is to be able to express in public what you feel inwardly. It's not that we have feelings, preferences, and desires that are different than others, but that we must have unhindered freedom to be able to publicly express them. And any disagreement, any hindrance to such an expression is deemed a threat from ignorant, hate-filled bigots who must be silenced, canceled, and punished. And so according to this message, this belief, if you feel attracted to members of the same sex, you should have the freedom to express that freely. If you feel like your gender does not match your physical body, you should be able to express what you feel. If you feel like you're a cat or a wolf or some other animal, you should be able to express that. 
And I'm not making that one up. You've probably seen this. People dressing up in furry ears and tails and running around barking and meowing and running on all fours and drinking from a bowl think that they identify as some animal. We're supposed to give them the freedom to be able to express, express that because they are being their true selves. I saw something really disturbing. These people who feel like babies on the inside. And so they will drink from a bottle. They will sleep in a crib. They will have their naps during the day. And they will even wear a diaper that somebody else changes. I'm talking about grown 40, 50-year-old adults doing this. But that's their true self, right? Now, those are the extreme. Those are the ones that get all the, the attention in our society today. And these are the ones I'm really going to talk about because even that extremism, uh, affirming that is creeping into the church. But next week, I'm actually going to talk about a form of expressive individualism that's usually acceptable within church culture. But it's still believing in that same message. And so it's easy to point at and laugh and say how disgusting at those that are practicing this form of expressive individualism. Just hold back your fingers <laughs> because... It's just as rampant in a different way in the church as well, but let's keep going here. So like I said, for anyone to disagree with that or refuse to affirm what they feel, they're labeled as hate-filled enemies that must be silenced. And this has even led to a new definition of love. And this is what I'm seeing many people in the church that are buying into as well. According to the world, loving someone means affirming and agreeing with whatever someone believes about themselves or whatever lifestyle they choose to live. If you don't affirm them, if you don't accept their choices, or if you even go, dare to go so far as to say that they're wrong, that's not love, it's hate, and hate has got to be destroyed. Folks, nothing could be further from the truth. Love is not affirming and agreeing with whatever someone feels or believes about themselves. That is not love. We see what love is in Scripture, and nowhere does it define love as even coming remotely close to that. Here's a good definition based on what the Bible reveals about love. Love is saying or doing that which is good for the eternal value, eternal welfare of the human soul. Saying or doing that which is good for the eternal welfare of the human soul. Not for the welfare of someone's feelings, but for the welfare of their soul. Because many of those lifestyle choices the world says that we should accept God says is actually going to damn your soul. And if that's a good definition of love, then hate would be saying or doing that which is not good for the eternal welfare of the human soul. And so if we are affirming something that is actually damning to the soul, we're not loving them at all. 
Not at all. What's more important, someone's feelings or someone's soul? Our culture today idolizes feelings and emotion and puts them above everything else, completely disregarding the eternal soul. It's way more important. Remember the definition of the kingdom of God, God's way, God's ways operating through God's people under God's rule. How do we know what God's ways are? He's given it to us right here in his word. God is the one who designed and created us. And so he is the one who would obviously know best what ways for us to live that would lead to our flourishing as humans. And so what he says about homosexuality, sexual immorality, gender, marriage, and everything else about how we live is for our flourishing and our deepest joy. Not to hold us back from anything good, not to constrain us or make us suffer, but to lead us into flourishing and pure joy. And so it really boils down to whether or not we believe and trust that he is a good father who wants nothing but our best for us. If we believe that, then we must believe that his ways, what he says and how we should live is best for the eternal welfare of our soul. If someone that we know has feelings that are contrary to what God says is best, the most loving thing we can do is not to agree or affirm them, but to tell them that's not God's best for you and to just speak truth to them of who they really are, who he created them to be. And folks, I'm not talking about rejecting them. I'm not talking about shaming them. There is a way to confront people in truth with the love that Jesus had for those who are rejected by society. So think about this. Jesus never affirmed a sinful lifestyle in anyone, but he was accused for doing the very, that very thing. He loved them to the point where the religious people, the judgmental people, said he was accepting their lifestyles, but he wasn't. He was loving them, but speaking truth against all the error that they were believing. And that's what led to their transformation. That tells us that's how we've got to be. We've got to be willing to speak truth, but loving them to the point where judgmental religious people might actually accuse us of affirming them. But think about it. I mean, if your toddler was about to stick a fork in a light socket, how loving would it be to go, oh, they really feel like that's going to be a good idea. I'm going to just affirm their feelings and support their decision. No, the loving thing to do would be run over there and go, no, do not do that. That could kill you. But you might hurt their feelings if you do that. I don't care. There's something more important about their feelings. Here's the thing, much of what the world says that we should affirm and support does not align with what God says is best. And there are many believers 
who know what God says, yet still think the things the world says is okay. They bought into the lies of the culture. And whenever we base our decisions on what we feel and what we think is best, we are inevitably going to run into something in God's words, word that says, you're wrong. And so the question is this. When you and what you believe doesn't agree with what God's word says, who wins? Who wins? If you don't submit to and trust what God says, you're going to try everything you can to try to twist his word to fit what it is that you believe. People do that all the time. I'm telling you right now, we cannot try to make the scriptures fit what we believe. We have to make what we believe fit the scriptures. And if you're doing something that you know goes against what God says, but you're like, but man, everybody in the culture, it's okay. Everybody else is doing it. That's called rebellion. When you know what God is saying, you're like, yeah, I know what God's word says. I know what God thinks about it, but I'm going to do this anyway. That's outright rebellion. And rebellion has never worked out well for anyone. The kingdom of this world says pursue expressive individualism. Be your true self. The kingdom of God says in Galatians 2.20, I, my individual self, has been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But what about those who were born with those feelings? Jesus said in John 3, 3, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. It's not about your original birth. It's about your new birth that is required to be a part of his kingdom. Proverbs 14, 22 says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. How will I know if what I think is right will actually lead to death? You'll know by whether or not it aligns with what God says, aligns with his words. Folks, we cannot allow feelings and personal beliefs to define reality and define and determine what's right and what's wrong. We have to submit to the creator. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Everything that we do must be based on and grounded in the announcement of what God has done. In the person of Jesus, he has fulfilled his promises and established his kingdom on earth. Do you want to be a part of his kingdom or would you rather just build your own? Or be accepted by the kingdoms of this world? Every other kingdom in this world is eventually going to crumble under the authority of his. They will not last. They will not stand. Do you really want to be a part of that? Or do you want to be a part of the one that's going to stand for eternity and crush all others? You can be a part of his. The invitation goes out to all. There's only two requirements. Repent. And believe, the announcement demands a response. What's yours? Let's pray.
Lord, what an incredible thing to think of how you, acting independently of us, fixed the problem of the human soul. That Jesus, what you have done has completely changed everything. And Lord, I confess that we just get so distracted and so caught up in things that don't really matter at all in light of eternity that we miss that. Lord, we get so caught up into building our own kingdoms that we don't even think about what it means to be a part of yours and that we get the incredible opportunity to partner with you to expand your kingdom everywhere we go. Lord, I pray that we would be so on fire and excited about the announcement that we can't help but tell others about it. And so, Lord, I pray that right now in the, in the remainder of this service, Lord, that there will be an over, overwhelming response of repentance and belief. Lord, those who have been buying into the message of this world, of this culture that stands against your truth. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that right now. Lord, I pray that we would be more about preserving others' soul than preserving their feelings. That you will give us an eternal perspective and just create a sense of urgency in us, God. So Holy Spirit, would you come now and just take everything we looked at in your word and do what only you can do. Just use it, Lord, to transform our hearts, renew our minds for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Praise team's going to lead us in.